Welcome back to Unprecedential, an AEI podcast on American constitutionalism. I'm Adam White. It's February 21st, and we just this morning at AEI had a very interesting live event with a scholar who's written an important and interesting new book on the history of the Supreme Court. That discussion will be released as a podcast. In fact, by the time you hear this, hopefully you will have already listened to it. But we thought it'd be good to sit down with the author for an extra discussion. I like to call it bonus tracks, like a CD. Tall, you know what a CD is? I grew up on CDs. I'm the last of the generation that actually listened to CDs. <laughs> and so this is like the, the Rick Rubin remix at the end of the, of the discussion. Okay, now you lost me. <laughs> but we thought it'd be good to continue the discussion a little bit and touch on a few other issues that we just didn't have an opportunity to reach in the discussion. The book is titled Repugnant Laws, Judicial Review of Acts of Congress from the Founding to the Present, published by Kansas University's Press. And the author is Keith Whittington, the William Nelson Cromwell Professor of Politics at Princeton University. Keith, thanks for joining us again. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. So as I said, we'll pick up a little bit where we left off in the discussion. It was pretty wide ranging. We walked through the history of the court's work. I mean, this book, for those who haven't yet listened to the first discussion, please do. This book is a very close reading of two centuries of Supreme Court history, filling in a lost history that was, I guess as lost history suggests, that was lost, filling in the the fact that the Supreme Court actually decided the constitutionality of many, many more acts of Congress than the conventional wisdom recognizes. The court struck down many more laws than was we often think, but also they've affirmed many more laws than we often think. And so this book is a challenge to both those who think the court has struck down very few laws, but also it's a challenge to those who think the court is regularly in the business of pushing back against Congress. The truth is somewhere in the middle. One of the themes that comes across very strongly in the book, but we didn't get a chance to touch on, but I want to because one of my intellectual heroes is Alexander Bickel, is your thoughts on Bickel and what he described as the counter-majoritarian difficulty. So, Keith, why don't you tell us what Bickel meant by that and why you think, how you found that actually the court's history is not one of counter-majoritarian difficulty much at all. Right. So, Alexander Bickel was a law professor at Yale and was writing through the 60s and, and into the early 1970s and classically characterized the problem of the U.S. Supreme Court exercising judicial review as being what he characterizes as a counter-majoritarian difficulty that the court, in really borrowing from populist and progressive sensibilities, Bickel portrayed the court as an anti-democratic force in American society. Specifically, they are invalidating statutes passed by a popularly elected legislature, which he thought created dilemmas for a political system that was grounded in democracy and in a post-New Deal world in which we emphasize the importance of legislatures passing laws. It required special justification for the court to be striking things down. He then really set the agenda for a lot of normative constitutional theory, trying to think about how exactly do we justify the work that the court does and, and what kind of principles ought to be guiding the court so it's as legitimate as possible in what it's doing. Both people on the left and people on the right sort of use this framework for thinking about the court. I think for a lot of political scientists, we were always a little nervous about this framework, that characterizing the court as a harshly counter-majoritarian institution, it seemed uh, to some degree to mischaracterize the nature of statutes and what's passing through legislatures and how majoritarian we ought to think those products of legislatures are, but also mischaracterizes the court and how it was operating. So my book does sort of fit into that mold of really trying to think about what is the relationship between the court and, in this case, Congress, politically, whose ox are being gored, 
when the court is exercising power of judicial review and just how much is the court getting in the way of the uh, legislative agenda being pursued by political majorities. And the book argues that the courts, while it is active in striking down laws, and it has been all through American history, probably should not, for the most part, be characterized as a, as a dramatically counter-majoritarian institution. It is mostly working within fissures of the governing majority. It shares a lot of the same sensibilities as those who control the other elected branches of government and rarely is running headlong against those branches of government, but is more often exploiting cracks in the dominant coalition. Yeah. And just so just to put a fine point on it, oftentimes the Supreme Court is affirming the constitutionality of statutes. Often when the Supreme Court strikes down a statute, it's striking down a statute that was passed a long time ago. And so even though it had majority support when it was enacted, in theory, it might not have that anymore. The court might be taking a very majoritarian move in the here and now by striking down a statute that no longer has popular support. So when the court does strike down a statute that has popular support now, that act is still counter-majoritarian. I think maybe the, maybe the, the, the fact is that I guess maybe the best way to look at it, the best way to, to understand this from a Bacallian perspective is the court sometimes is called upon, put it this way, as the counter-majoritarian difficulty, not because the court is always doing difficult things, but because from time to time it's called upon to take the, the difficult counter-majoritarian work of striking down a statute. It's not just a constant block on the majority. Yeah, and certainly part of the normative reaction to the way in which Bickle set up the problem was to say that the point of a court is to enforce constitutional limits against what majorities want sometimes. And so sometimes we precisely want courts to be counter-majoritarian. I think Bickle was correctly characterizing what sort of the populist progressive New Deal sensibility was, that this is an illegitimate thing for the court to be doing to be resisting popular majorities. But there are those, especially after the Warren Court era on the political left, for example, who embraced that notion that part of what the court ought to be doing is pushing back on that. And there certainly are examples where that's what the court is doing, where the court, in fact, has been resisting what dominant majorities want. I think it's sometimes complicated to think how to tease that apart, though, when we're thinking about statutory provisions. And so Bickle wanted to frame this very easily as just saying, well, if it's a law, it passed through a majoritarian institution like a popularly elected legislature, therefore... Anything the court does in striking down that law is going to be counter-majoritarian. But often what the court is thinking about are small features of larger pieces of legislation, for example. It's not clear how much support those small features necessarily ever had. For example, sometimes they're compromised pieces of legislation that a minority of the legislature is willing to stick, is able to stick in to a larger package that the majority of the legislature doesn't like anyway. And so the court extracting that hardly runs against the will of the majority. But there's no question there are cases where the court sometimes is running smack up against policies that the current political majority is, in fact, very invested in and is pushing. And sometimes the current political majority's interest in that, I think, is, is fleeting. And so it was popular at the moment, but it's not something that people win or lose elections on, for example. And so the court can politically get away with striking those things down relatively easily. We can think about flag burning in that context, for yeah. example. The general public thought flag burning laws were totally fine. There's a lot of political and popular support for passing flag burning laws, but no one was going to lose elections based on flag burning. No one was that deeply invested in it. And as a consequence, I think the court could stand up to that pressure relatively easily. On the other hand, during that window, during Franklin Roosevelt's first term, where the court is aggressively striking down core features of the New Deal at a time in which both Congress and the president were deeply committed to the New Deal, 
that proved unsustainable. The political pressure of pushing back against the court was extreme, and the court ultimately had to back off in the face of that kind of pressure. So when the court does go head-to-head with political majorities, court often doesn't win. You know, thinking about the, that New Deal moment, I mean, one of the seminal examples, and it's on our minds now because the court's about to hear the, the challenge to the CFPB and constitutional structure. Here you had FDR trying to fire an FTC commissioner being limited by a statute, and the court upholds that limit on the president. The statute was old. The statute right. was from, at that point, almost 25 years earlier, I suppose. Right the FTC Act limiting the president. So there you had the court affirming the constitutionality of a statute against the political majority against him. So they were counter-majoritarian in affirming the statute. The other sort of Bickelian theme that I think actually your book really vindicates is what Bickel described as the passive virtues, Mm -hmm. where Bickel said sometimes the court, its most important decisions are to not decide, to defer things. At some points in American history, as we discussed in this morning's events, that sort of characterizes the court's work. In the early republic, when they were were considering the constitutionality of statutes, these were statutes that were passed many years earlier. During times of war, especially the Civil War and in World War II, the court's delay, even just the delay of days, months, or a year, could allow the case to ultimately be decided in very different political circumstances. And so that that Bacallian theme certainly, I think, is, is, it comes across strongly in, in your writings here. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, Bickle is partially in order to resolve the counter-majoritarian difficulty. Bickle encourages the court to right. avoid some of these conflicts. He's worried that it's not politically sustainable. He's also worried that it creates democratic theory problems, and so courts should try to avoid those conflicts. And part of what Bickle is concerned about is trying to develop tools by which the court can duck those controversial issues or delay having to address those issues. With the modern discretionary docket, it's relatively easy for the court to avoid some of those issues. At other points in American history, it was more complicated for the court to duck. But I think all through American history, certainly there have been occasions where the court has tried to uh, delay hearing certain issues, avoid hearing certain kinds of issues, where it might run into deep political resistance from the other branches. Civil War is a classic example of that where and Reconstruction period immediately right. after the Civil War, so not, it didn't end with the Civil War itself, where there's a lot of nervousness on the part of Republicans in Congress about how the court would respond, especially during the Civil War when it was still the Tawny Court and the mm-hmm. Republicans had not yet put enough justice on the court to be comfortable with the majority there. Right, because Chief Justice Tawny, of course, was appointed by Andrew Jackson. Chief Justice Tawny appointed by Andrew Jackson, wrote the Dred Scott decision that struck down slavery bans in the Western territories and that the Republican Party in part was organized against And so there's a deep distrust of the Supreme Court and the Republican majority during the Civil War, a lot of nervousness that the Supreme Court might interfere with what Congress was doing both during the war and also later during Reconstruction. And the court avoided having to resolve any of those issues. It didn't weigh in on those contested Civil War military issues during the war itself. They did not weigh in on the key Reconstruction issues during Reconstruction itself. And it's almost certainly the case that if they had tried to, they would have been in deep hot water politically. At one point, there's an effort, for example, to get the court to issue an order to President Johnson to force President Johnson not to implement the Reconstruction Acts in the South. And the court's pretty clear that you're asking us basically to get the president impeached by issuing such an order and probably we'd be next. Um, So, you know, in that kind of climate where Congress is willing to impeach a president over his resistance to congressional action, certainly not a safe environment for the court to imagine stepping up to the plate. 
there's a, in a, a letter from Chief Justice Marshall around the time that the Republicans were trying to impeach Justice Chase. Marshall says basically, well, if the choice is between justices being regularly impeached and justices not exercising judicial review, it's probably better to go with staying up. At the time when there were proposals to just get rid of judicial review, Marshall suggests that that would probably be the better outcome, right, than to just have the justices themselves being constantly thrown out. Yeah, Marshall, Marshall is clearly very self-conscious about the status of the court and, and its relative fragility in the political system more generally. He writes some letters. We don't have a ton of letters from, right. from Marshall. A lot of them didn't get saved. But, but he did write some letters during, around the Chase impeachment in which he's expressing exactly this kind of caution about if there's a risk of being impeached, it's, it's far more important for the court to try to save itself as an institution by um, avoiding those conflicts. But he also says similar things in the context of Justice Johnson, who winds up while writing circuit dealing with some cases involving restrictions on African-Americans entering into ports in South Carolina's harbor in particular. And Johnson uh, winds up striking that down as, as being uh, contrary to the federal constitution. And there's extraordinary pushback in South Carolina. It just creates a political firestorm. Ultimately, his opinions and uh, can't be enforced effectively. And Marshall says in letters that I know better than to run up against a wall like that. And, and Marshall clearly knew there were limits as to what judicial power could actually accomplish. And justice ought to be cognizant of those limits and avoid exposing just how weak the court actually could be. Yeah. So we talked for a few minutes about Bickle. Probably enough. Um, most people carry a Fitbit. I actually have a Bickle bit. So I make sure I get like my 10 minutes of Bickle discussion in every day. There you go. Yeah, but the historical figure whose work I think most comes across most strongly in the themes you identify is Tocqueville. Mm-hmm. We've talked about this before. You and I, well, there was an APSA panel about your paper, your book, and I was a, a pinch hitter on the panel. And, and my, my sort of brief remarks were focused on Tocqueville. I said, maybe the book could have been called Tocqueville's Triumph because so many of the themes that Tocqueville explored in the judicial power and his famous study of American democracy was focused on the judges having immense political power, but being able to sustain that power only because they don't thrust themselves into the arena. They oftentimes hide the import of their act because it's in individual cases. They mute it by reaching decisions that don't put the constitutional conflict front and center. They allow it to to work its ways elsewhere in the work of the courts. And so for me, the, the story you've told is, is, is actually a, a strongly Tocquevillian one. I know you're not necessarily a scholar of Tocqueville. I'm not either, but that came across for me. Setting aside the book now, I just want to talk a little bit about your work as a political scientist who, who studies the, the history of American institutions, especially the courts. At the end of this book, you do point out that the Roberts Court, or at least the Supreme Court since the beginning of the 21st century, has struck down federal statutes, and I think you said state statutes also, at a historically low level. I'm just curious of your view of the Roberts Court in general, how it resembles or doesn't resemble the court's history as, as a whole. Should we think of the Roberts Court so far, I mean, he's been chief justice for 15 years, right. as being just sort of the latest chapter in a fairly steady tale? Or is there novelty there that we ought to pay attention to? Painfully broad question, but I'm just curious <laughs> well, how, you, how you think about the Roberts Court. Yeah, I mean, I think there certainly are some differences with the Roberts Court. In part, I think the, the on this point about a number of cases invalidating laws, I think the Roberts Court really is a continuation of the Rehnquist Court in this regard, in that there was for a while a lot of talk about the Rehnquist Court and how active it was in striking down laws of Congress. And there was a blip there where it was striking down more than 
was average for the time. But I thought the part of that story that people tended not to think enough about was how few state laws the Rehnquist Court was striking down. There had been a steady decline in, in those cases across the Rehnquist Court, and that continued over the Roberts Court. And so when the late Rehnquist Court and then the Roberts Court peddled back on how often they were striking down congressional laws, that was paired with a dramatic decline in how many times they were striking down state laws. And the consequence is, on the whole, then, the court's not striking down very many laws at all. It's a pace of invalidations across those two areas that hasn't been seen in decades for the court. And so in that sense, the court seems very deferential and restrained compared to most of its predecessors. In part, the Roberts Court then has shifted its attention to thinking about other issues instead of primarily thinking about constitutional law issues. Mm -hmm. So it's not the other feature of that judicial review docket is the court is taking fewer and fewer cases in which it's upholding federal laws either. And so it's just a shrinking portion of its docket where it's even thinking about constitutional issues. Um, And instead, it's focused much more on thinking about other statutory issues, administrative law issues, and the like. I think we're also in this interesting moment now. The book ends with Justice Kennedy's resignation, so it brings it up to that point. That's a a useful stopping place in some ways because Kennedy was a very long-serving justice and a pivotal figure on the court, and so uh, made a big difference in how the court was exercising judicial review. It was practically the someone called the Kennedy Court. It was the Kennedy Court in lots of ways for a period of time, and so and so one interesting question is sort of what does the post Kennedy Court look like? Does it start behaving radically differently than the than the court did under Kennedy? I think during Kennedy's tenure, especially the, the later part of Kennedy's tenure, the court was striking down exactly how many laws. Justice Kennedy wanted to strike down because he was the fifth vote. Sometimes he was joining the liberal coalition, sometimes joining the conservative coalition, but no coalition was going to strike down laws unless he was willing to do it. He's no longer there playing that role, and that means he's no longer holding back those who want to, but he's also not adding votes to those who want to. And so I think what remains to be seen is we have a much more stable conservative majority now on the court. It's much less likely you're going to have a fifth justice going back and forth between the liberals and the conservatives. But it's not evident to me what that means in terms of how often the court's going to be striking down laws. Of course, obviously, some of that depends on what laws Congress is passing. And so if you imagine a Sanders administration and passing radically liberal laws, maybe a conservative court, in fact, starts striking down quite a few. A wealth tax. I mean, the wealth, right. the wealth tax seems like the policy that's most clearly teed up to be almost a reenactment of the, the New Deal era sort of push the struggle between the Supreme Court and a new administration if that were to come to pass. No, that's certainly my worry about the about the current situation with the court. You have a relatively stable majority of conservatives on the court, which has not been true for decades. And you have the possibility of a new reinvigorated left-wing coalition that mm-hmm. could actually win sizable majorities and be pushing a radically new agenda on the other side that undoubtedly will run contrary to what the court's own view about the Constitution requires under those circumstances. That did not go well for the court when that happened during the New Deal. And I would not anticipate it would go well for the court now if the yeah. court tried to throw itself against that wave. So it's, a, I think, a, a potentially politically very risky time for the yeah. court if they find that self, themselves in that situation. Well, unless the Sanders administration just adds seven new justices, in which case the problem is solved. So are we going to jump in? I was just going to say it's no coincidence that court packing is yeah. being floated along with certain things that I think members of this new left coalition are well aware would run into serious roadblocks in in the the legal system. Yeah. Congress has been very willing to talk about curbing the court in various ways, various kinds of statutory measures that might try to put a crimp in the court as a way in part of sending political signals to the court about how unhappy certain members of Congress are about the court over time. Court packing has not been one of the things that Congress has talked about in quite a long time. And it is remarkable that we've mainstreamed that and are now talking about court packing in a way that we just have not 
talked about it since the 1930s. And interesting in part because in the 1930s, the battle over FDR's core packing proposal led to a conclusion that that was a dreadful mistake. And, and people really thought that they were trying to put a nail in the coffin of core packing so it would never be talked about again. And yet here we are. So I, I think it's, it probably would very much be on the table if you wind up with a Sanders administration or some other similar administration on the left that has a robust agenda that they want to move forward and is likely to run against conservative constitutional sensibilities. I mean, history is repeating in a few other ways with more recent antecedents. When there are, after Justice Kavanaugh was confirmed and there were immediately calls to impeach him, yeah. I joked that, that they can just go ask the John Birch Society to dust off the signs from the roadside signs from the 1960s. Right. Or, or even more recently, with the there, there's this seems this you know very unsubtle effort to preemptively delegitimize the court, calling for a variety of, of ways to to sort of call into question the court's legitimacy. And it doesn't seem to me very far from what some people at, at, at First Things Magazine were saying in the 1990s in the aftermath of Planned Parenthood versus Casey, the sort of famous illegitimacy of, of the Supreme Court issue. Let's talk a little bit about, about your profession as a political scientist and a student of history. Earlier in your career, you were writing about originalism. And I'm just very curious. I always see originalism, unsurprisingly, through the lens of a lawyer, sure. or at least a recovering lawyer. But as somebody who comes to this as a real academic scholar, a student of history, a scholar of history, how should we think about originalism? What does it get right? And, and what, if anything, could be improved, either in theory or just in the way it's practiced? Yeah. So I have to admit, I come to originalism with sort of two different kinds of hats on. And, and I wind up writing two rather different things relating to originalism. So I first became interested in originalism primarily as a political theorist. So I went to graduate school in political science because I was interested in democratic and liberal theory. Originalism had very interesting implications for thinking about theories of textual interpretation, theories of democracy, and the like. And so I was particularly intrigued by it from that perspective. And I was very sympathetic to it. I was an undergrad when Robert Bork's nomination for the Supreme Court was defeated. I was very influenced by Bork and the struggle of originalism of the, in the Reagan administration. And so I was very sympathetic to it, but I was not very satisfied with the theory that had developed around originalism. And so as I started looking at that more seriously as a graduate student, I thought there were a lot of unanswered questions there, a lot of places where the argument had not been developed very deeply, a lot of weaknesses in the argument. And so some of my early work then was trying to construct a what I thought was a better, more robust, more defensible version of originalism than had been emerging out of the 70s and 1980s. I've continued since then to tinker with that and try to continue adding to and, and defending uh, originalism in, in the version that I think is defensible. I've been pleased. I think some others have come on board with the kind of uh, view of originalism that I've tried to advocate and defend. So I continue to write about that, and I probably will continue to write about it in the future. I also think about originalism as an empirical scholar of courts and how much do courts actually adhere to originalism and can we expect judges um, to do that? And there, I think the story is a somewhat disappointing one. I think the courts certainly give lots of lip service to originalism. They have all through history. They've never renounced the ideals of originalism per se, but they have not always been very good at actually doing the hard work of figuring out what the original meaning of the Constitution is or um, of actually standing up for it over time. And I, I think we ought to continue holding judges' feet to the fire on this front. We ought to continue to encourage originalism as the correct approach to thinking about the Constitution, at least the re correct starting point for thinking about the Constitution. But I, have, I think you also have to be realistic about how courts behave and recognize that they are uh, not scholars sitting around in seminar rooms thinking about this, but they are also 
political actors in a governing system having to make policy and, and balancing a lot of interest in, as, as part of that process. And so they're going to be imperfect vehicles for, for doing that. Well, in terms of doing the hard work of history, thinking through the relationship between the court and academic historians and political scientists, I'd say when originalism first started to arise, the immediate response among many academic historians, at least, and I know you're not a, a PhD in history, so we're, we're not going to criticize a completely different field. Uh, maybe perhaps the immediate reaction to those historians who actually engaged with the court's work was to say the entire endeavor was misguided, right? right. Maybe the classic example is Jack Rakoff sure. with his book Original Meanings saying, well, there is no su- really no such thing as the original right. meaning. It's ahistorical, and to try to root the court's work into it is just a mistake from the right. bottom up. More recently, as originalism, just as a practical matter now, has taken hold, it's sure. like saying, do you, do you believe in originalism? Well, I'm, I'm Catholic. I believe in re- baptism. I've seen it done. <laughs> right. And if originalism, whether you agree with it or not, it's being done right. now, you right. see more and more briefs being filed in cases. Yep. At least my sense of it is that more, there's more and more briefs sure. filed by historians trying to support legal arguments. And this is always very tricky, right? Because yep. it's true that academic historians... They are historians, and they they have a certain set of what's the movie from taking a certain set of skills right. um, from the movie taken. Um, <laughs> but originalism is this difficult task of dovetailing right. historical research with the answering of questions of how to interpret the Constitution or statutes. Right. And so, again, another impossibly broad question, but just in general terms, how should we think about this relationship between the study of history and the practice of law or judicial right. decision-making? Right. Yeah, I, think, I do think historians tend to be very skeptical about originalism as a theory and how to think about the Constitution. And, and I think in part that's a function of their disciplinary perspective and what they are interested in and how they go about trying to think about these things. To some degree, it comes out of a misunderstanding of modern originalist theories. So some of what they're reacting yeah. to are older versions of originalism, but some of them are also keeping up with where originalist theory is going, and they're reacting as well, I think, to more recent versions of originalism and how it proceeds. In part, historians, I think, have an interest in identifying the complexity of history. That is what they're invested in. And, and history is, in fact, very complicated. Right. And so they're right to think that history is very complicated and that there's a lot there and there's a lot of context that's very interesting and that they are concerned with unpacking. The concern of lawyers, though, I think is somewhat different and more narrow. And, and I think as a consequence, historians often misunderstand the task that lawyers are setting for themselves in general when they're approaching text, but also specifically when they're doing this kind of historical work and, and dealing with originalism, when they're trying to uncover the original public meaning of a text they aren't necessarily thinking about the wide range of complexity, and they don't need the wide range of complexity that historians want to identify. It's a more limited job to think about what the original public meaning is and then try to think through what the legal effects of that rule are going to be, which is entirely a lawyerly task and not particularly a historical task. And so I think we are seeing now, I think, a real renaissance of serious historical work from an originalist perspective, some of it being done by historians, but a lot of it being done by originalist lawyers and scholars who are really doing the hard work of trying to understand what the original meaning of, of pieces of text are and, and providing really good historical evidence about what that looks like. Sometimes those things are controversial. There are arguments to be had in the weeds, and people aren't always going to agree on what that historical meaning looks like, and those disagreements are very interesting. But that's where you want the debate to be had if you're an originalist. You want the debate to be about, well, what does the original meaning actually look like? What does the historical evidence show? There may be disagreements about, about that. 
but let's do our best to try to understand understand that. And I think some of the historians are certainly coming on board and engaging in that um, project. Sometimes against their will, they're sort of being dragged into it because they think, well, the court's going to do it anyway, so at least yeah. we ought to help. But oddly enough, when they are called upon to do that, they think they actually can help. So they think, yeah. they think it's possible to find original meaning when they really have to. And those who aren't dragged in but who sort of jump in willingly, there's always then the risk of the selection bias, right, Absolutely. of this particular group of historians not necessarily being representative of the field as a whole. That's certainly um, true. Yeah. And, and part of what I've emphasized in, in, in my work on originalism and the normative theory work I've done on originalism is partially – emphasize this idea of constitutional construction as the places where the text is underdetermined from an original meaning perspective. And as a consequence, you have to flesh out what that meaning is going to be in practice more creatively in ways that are not simply dependent upon what the historical materials might show. And we should recognize as originalists that there are going to be places where constitutional meaning from an original perspective is underdetermined. There's going to be uncertainties about the meaning. And, and so we all take advantage of it when the meaning is relatively clear and specific and we can actually identify it. We also have to be self-conscious about the fact that sometimes the meaning is going to be underdetermined and then think hard about what you ought to do in those situations. And so I think one thing that sort of sets historians off when they think about originalism is they really imagine that the effort is trying to make the whole Constitution simple and clear in ways that I think a sophisticated originalist wouldn't expect the Constitution to actually be, that we can accept the fact that the Constitution is sometimes not as clear as we would like even though it may set some clear boundaries. And our task then trying to construct a legal theory that takes that into account is to think about, okay, where can we identify the clear boundaries, but also what we do in that construction zone where things are, are less well-determined. Suddenly, these construction zone, it just reminds me, 15 years ago when blogs were a new thing, there was a legal blog called the Statutory Construction Zone. Um, <laughs> but on this, on this point about construction, if I were king for a day, what I, what I would do, among other things, is I would insert a copy of Federalist 37 into the front of every constitutional law book. This is sort of a recurring theme around here. Tall has to hear me drone on about this forever. But for all of the focus that Federalist 78 rightfully gets, it should always be paired with Federalist 37 and Madison's discussion of the challenges of vagueness in written law. And now Will Boat has this, has this really great law review article about what Madison called liquidation. So hopefully it'll get more attention. For years, I've complained that Federalist 37 is the flyover country of the Federalist. You sort of miss it as you're right. going from Federalist 10 to 47. I'm from Iowa, so I'm allowed to make that joke. <laughs> but one last question. I don't want to keep you long. I've been putting you on the spot all day, first with the sure. event and now this. Among the areas of law that might change in the aftermath of Justice Kennedy's departure and Kavanaugh's arrival is the reemergence of a non-delegation doctrine. Now, right. as it happens, Kennedy was actually, he was interested in the subject himself, both as a Ninth Circuit judge, I think especially as a Ninth Circuit judge, but even a little bit maybe on the Supreme Court. But certainly the issue has now reemerged right. in the aftermath of his departure. Justice Gorsuch's dissent in the Gundy case, I've said a couple times, is the dissent that launched a thousand law review articles. Right. And not necessarily because Gorsuch wrote it, because we already knew where he was on this. It's not that Thomas joined it. Right. We knew where he was. It's that Chief Justice Roberts joined it. Yeah. And Justice Alito signaled some interest in the topic, too. Justice Kavanaugh, actually, when he was Judge Kavanaugh, delivered one of the annual lectures here. It's called the Walter Burns Lecture. Mm -hmm. And he actually talked about non-delegation and Justice Rehnquist's view right. of non-delegation. So this is all coming together now. And as it happens, you've written, is it two? Two articles. Two, yeah. Co-written with Jason Uliano. Uliano. Now uh, Villanova Law School. Yeah. So just for the sake of our, our audience, what's your basic view of 
debates around non-delegation. Yeah, so both of those articles were historical works, and so they were both interested in how courts have had developed and applied non-delegation doctrine over time. There's a relatively small set of U.S. Supreme Court cases that have done that across American history. But there are actually a, a pretty sizable number of lower federal court decisions and lots of state court decisions applying versions of non-delegation doctrine. And of course, state court decisions in part rely upon specific state constitutional provisions. But largely, they're articulating the same principles that the federal courts are trying to think through in non-delegation terms as well. And they think there's a common constitutional practice there that both the states and the federal courts are trying to articulate. And so part of what we were interested in is this question of how aggressive had the courts ever been in enforcing non-delegation doctrine? How successful had they ever been in doing it? And, and given the work I was doing on the Repugnant Laws book, I was a little skeptical about the idea that the court had ever been much of a resistance to the rise of the administrative state through non-delegation, for example. I certainly wasn't seeing it in the U.S. Supreme Court in these larger set of cases. And I think that's what we found as well when we look at, yeah. the, at the lower courts and the state courts, that across American history, courts have repeatedly said that there is something like a non-delegation doctrine, that there is a limiting principle here about how much powers state legislatures or federal legislatures can give away to other institutions. And the institutions vary, whether it's administrative agency or to courts or to the president or in the state context, often to voters, for example. So they often emphasize there is such a principle. But courts have been extremely reluctant to actually enforce that principle, yeah. and they rarely find that legislatures actually have violated across American history. And so I'm very sympathetic to those who would like to see a revitalized non-delegation doctrine and like to see the court be more aggressive in enforcing it. I do think the Congress has gone too far on this front, and it would be useful if the court were to start being a little more aggressive. But I wouldn't expect the court to be extremely aggressive just because I think it's not at all clear what kind of doctrine can be developed that would that would give a very good guidance as to how to do that. And it's hard to sustain the political will to actually do that. Yeah, actually consonant with one of the themes of your book, one of the ways in which non-delegation has actually succeeded over the years, for those who want to see it succeed, has been as a canon of construction. Right. Right, a, a canon of, for narrowing the construction of a statute that might otherwise raise non-delegation problems. Um, I expect that's probably what the Roberts Court will wind up doing. I, I, I do think the Roberts Court is going to make a move on, on in this area they may talk some more about the constitutional doctrine, but I yeah. certainly would expect them to be doing it in the context of statutory interpretation. And, and, and you can probably make some real headway in, in that space. Yeah, that was Kavanaugh's approach in D.C. Circuit opinions. Mm -hmm. And actually in the talk that he gave here, I think it was the title's called The Statesmanship of Chief Justice Rehnquist. He focused on Rehnquist's opinion in a case called the, the Benzene case right. in the early 80s. And, and Kavanaugh stressed there the value of non-delegation as a, as a canon of construction. I was pretty uh, frankly surprised to see Roberts join the Gorsuch dissent without any kind of caveat. Right. But I do wonder if in the long run, Roberts won't settle into using this as a canon of construction. But, you know, around the same time that he joined that dissent, he wrote the majority opinion for the court in the partisan gerrymandering case, right. where his opinion stressed that no matter how important an issue, even at a constitutional level, and no matter how it might sort of deform, partisan gerrymanders could threaten to deform the legislatures themselves, it wasn't a good place for the courts to weigh in and start striking down laws because there was no clear right. line to draw. And so I've been calling this the non-delegations gerrymandering problem because I think actually anybody who wants to ultimately bring Chief Justice Roberts along right. to the court to decisions that hold that statutes are unconstitutional under the non-delegation doctrine, 
we're going to have to find a way to answer the questions he's raising in the gerrymandering context. You know, when Justice Scalia, before he was justice, or even Judge Scalia, and he was just lowly law professor and think tanker Scalia, he was here at AEI, not in this building, it was the, the old building. And he, he edited Regulation Magazine, and he wrote an essay called A Note on the Benzene Case, where he actually said a lot of things that you just said. It's almost impossible for the court to find constitutional lines to enforce the non-delegation doctrine, which is not to say non-delegation isn't an important doctrine. It's just not one that courts, as he saw it, courts would be well-suited to enforce. But then he made the point that, a point close to what you made, which is, this isn't what you're saying, but yeah, yeah. it's almost a shame there isn't a way to draw this line, if only to keep Congress on its toes. He sort of he joked in the article, it might be good for the court to just strike down a statute almost at random once in a while. Today, I'd think of it almost like a drone strike that comes in and just zaps a law just to keep Congress on its toes. But that's not exactly principled judicial decision making. Well, it's, so to so that, <laughs> striking one down random would not be principled no. judicial decision making. But it would not surprise me at all if the court doesn't make some symbolic move on constitutional non-delegation relative to some relatively extreme statute. And yeah. I think the the model here might be the Lopez decision. Right? Yeah. So, so people freaked out when the court decided the Lopez case. It was the first time the court struck something down, a federal law down on Commerce Clause grounds in decades. And people thought, well, this is the start of something quite radical and new. And instead, it turned out the court was hardly willing to strike down anything after that. I think one thing that's striking about the underlying law in, in Lopez case, the Gun-Free School Zones Act, was it was an extreme law that pretty clearly was outside the bounds of what any kind of reasonable federalism doctrine ought to do. So in some ways, it was an easy case to say, well, we ought, we ought to find some way of striking that down because that's clearly way outside the bounds. But the court still didn't come up with a very good doctrine that was going to help them in harder, more difficult cases. And so and so Lopez increasingly looked like a one-off, a warning shot to Congress. I wouldn't be surprised if we don't get something similar in non-delegation. There's some extreme statutory provision. The court can easily signal, look, you got to pay attention to this. We're going to strike this one down, but you don't see a lot of replays of it. But instead, the court winds up doing the statutory interpretation route and using this as a canon of interpretation so that it winds up paring back some statutory language without having to try to play up some larger constitutional doctrine it could actually enforce across the board. Yeah, you know, the real challenge, and even if there was some new statute they could tar- they, that were targeted in a lawsuit they could strike down, the real challenge is that any non-delegation case is always decided under the shadow of that vast sort of stock of federal statutes, some a century older or older, that are written in extremely broad terms like the public interest statutes and so on. The way I guess you avoid that problem is, one, take the cases from the mid-20th century that affirm those statutes and really take them seriously, which is to say, the court said then that these passed muster under the non-delegation doctrine because these broad terms were actually written against a backdrop of history that would cabin their interpretation going forward. And, and then also by focusing on a new statute, you avoid sort of the problems of settled expectations of old statutes. And you sort of leave a caveat saying, of course, older statutes might give rise to some sort of sort of stability questions, right. which then you say you, you solve that by actually allowing sort of principles of liquidation in Federalist 37 yeah. to have their way. The statutes might be less limited when they're new, but over time come to accumulate some practical limitations. I think that's right. I think you have to be careful in trying to think about what statutes strike down and how to do it and what kind of signals you're sending and what kind of agenda you're willing to actually follow through with down the road. Because you can easily imagine you're opening can of worms and thinking about all these old statutes that have some pretty broad delegations and the court 
presumably it's not a political appetite to really try to go back after all those statutes. And Congress doesn't have the interest in going back and trying to rewrite them in a more reasonable way. On the other hand, thinking hard about the National Emergency Act, for example, would not be such a bad uh, idea. Roberts, the, maybe the, the court's keenest institutionalist, would he want to, as you said, open up a can of worms late in his career when others are going to be cleaning up the mess? <laughs> if he were a new justice, if he were a new chief justice with the majority he has now, you might see him raising some of these questions sure. knowing he has a better likelihood of answering them. I wonder how long Chief Justice Roberts expects to be on the court and what that kind of speculation, actuarial speculation, might have for the way he approaches some of these cases where you're, as we've seen, and now now we're going really long, I don't mean to, but so often Chief Justice Roberts has taken issues a bite at a time, Voting Rights Act, Public Sector Unions, perhaps knowing that he would return to them over time. He's now been on the court for 15 years. Maybe he'll be on for another 15. Who knows? Maybe more, maybe less. But the longer he's on it, the more he probably has to wonder what sort of questions does he want to leave his successor to have to deal with. That's certainly an issue, right? I mean, and, and it's hard to know what the limits of your coalition are, right? So you've got five justices who are relatively conservative. They're probably on the same page about some things. But I doubt any of them really know quite how far they're all willing to push on some of these kinds of issues. And and that is something that tends to get worked out over cases. You find out, okay, where are the limits here? Where are we going to start losing votes? As well as you start encountering where are the complexities of, of dealing with additional cases down the road. Of course, the other aspect of the court's work is the court's a reactive institution in response to what other branches are doing. No matter what agenda or constitutional interest any of the justices have, including Chief Justice Roberts might have, and thinking, oh, okay, it'd be great to rethink this particular area of law, Congress can upset that apple cart by going off and doing a whole bunch of new statutes that create a whole new constitutional agenda and the court has to deal with, and suddenly you're off and running on something you hadn't anticipated. Speaking of off and running, we should allow you to get off and running. We've taken up so much of your time this morning, first with the live event and now with with the podcast. But again, for listeners who haven't already looked up the book, it's titled Repugnant Laws, Judicial Review of Acts of Congress from the Founding to the Present. I would say this, even if you weren't in the room, this is just such a, a landmark achievement in the study of American constitutionalism and the Supreme Court that anybody who wants to think seriously about the court is going to have to read and grapple with this book. So I'd encourage all of our listeners to go out and buy it. And again, thank you, Keith, for joining us today. Thanks. I really appreciate it. Even though we're not covered by the FCC, we try to avoid obscenity. And so don't mention Andrew Jackson. Um.